All right, what's up, TP fam? How are we doing today? Good, man. Good to be with you. And I uh, hope that you've got your calendars marked this Wednesday, 7 p.m., uh, worship night here at our Northwest location. And I just uh, formally want to invite uh, anybody, maybe you don't live in the Indianapolis area, but you watch online. Maybe you're from some other part of our state. Uh, maybe you go to another one of our campuses and just want to encourage you to be here in person Wednesday night at 7 just something really uh, powerful about our whole church getting together under one roof for one hour, one evening. We don't do that very often. Um, and uh, God, just expecting God to move in a significant way. And I've had this uh, date marked on my calendar for a while because uh, the last time we did a worship night like this was just a couple of weeks before the pandemic, a couple of years ago. And so I'm looking forward to, and if you, any of you were here during that time, it was a really, really special night. And uh, just looking forward to an hour where we can come and just lift up our voices and express our dependency upon God, just because of everything that's going on in the world and in our lives. Uh, we need it. If you're not sure about it, just give it a shot. And uh, I hope to see you here that evening. I uh, also want to give you just a quick update about our involvement and what we're doing uh, with the crisis in the Ukraine. Um, one of our uh, ministry partners, we just found out from them a few days ago, Polish Christian Ministries, they are uh, trying to uh, purchase or secure a hotel that has been vacant since COVID. And they want to use the hotel to house 100 Ukrainian refugee families that are just pouring into their city. And uh, so you can be praying about that. And uh, the funds that we've already sent them, they've used that to hire somebody full-time. And th their full-time job is just to pastor the refugee families that are coming from the Ukraine into their city. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just thank you. I don't know if you realize this fully or not, is that your ongoing generosity, what it does is it enables us to be generous towards others when crises arise within the world. And unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of that happening right now. And so just your ongoing generosity just enables us to pivot and to uh, place resources where there is need. So I wanna thank you for that. And I wanna ask you to continue to pray, not only over the whole situation, but specifically uh, that hotel. And there's other things that we're working on. We'll try to keep you guys updated with. Well, uh, we are on the home stretch uh, towards wrapping up this message series that we have been in since the beginning of the year. And uh, what I mean by that is that if this message series were a flight from Indy to Denver, we are on the final approach. All right, so we're getting the cabin ready for arrival. Uh, seat backs need to go in their upright position because next Sunday, we're actually gonna wrap all of this up. And so if uh, you are joining us for the very first time, let me just kind of catch you up real quickly. We have been walking our way through Matthew chapters five through seven. And that section of Matthew's gospel is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus has been on a hillside for quite possibly several days teaching this incredible message that is both clarifying as well as it is disorienting. Would you not agree with that assessment? There's some things that he says, you're, man, that's crystal clear, that helps me understand. And there's some other things that he says that are somewhat perplexing. And that's one of the things that I love about Jesus. You uh, are around him long enough. You uh, read his teachings long enough and you begin to realize that Jesus is not all that interested in gathering crowds, counting converts, or keeping the attention of consumers. Jesus is interested in people who are willing to follow him. Now, ordinary, imperfect people that still struggle with sin, yes. But people that have surrendered their lives to him, 
repented of their sin on a continual basis, and then asked for the empowering of his Holy Spirit so that we can live out the values of the kingdom in which he is king, that we would be his representatives of that kingdom, not just in some distant future called heaven, but in the here and the now right here on earth, which means that he's got to adjust the way that we see things. And so we see this refrain all throughout the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus would say, hey, you have heard it said, and then he flips it, we would say right side up actually, uh, but I say to you, hey, here's how you see things, but let me show you how to see it differently. And the Sermon on the Mount, we said this on week one, it is not a list of virtues to abide by. It is not a moral checklist, and it is certainly not the list of things that we need to do to be justified in God's eyes and be saved. No, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God in which he is king. And he says, no, this is the way that the world should have been, but it isn't because of our own sin, pride, and rebellion. This is the way that the world could have been and would have been, and thankfully by God's grace, will ultimately one day will be because Jesus came to rescue and redeem that which is broken. And so Jesus says right now in the here and now, I want you to be, and here's the Bible word for it, an ambassador. And an ambassador is somebody who lives in a foreign land who is a representative of their original nation. And so Jesus says, this world is not your home. You're just an ambassador. You're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. So stand out, be distinct in the best possible way. Don't just blend in and don't get too comfortable here because this is not your home. Now, as he begins to bring this whole teaching to a close, what he's going to do in the passage that we're going to look at today from Matthew chapter seven is he's going to warn us about people that pretend to be something that they are not as well as he's gonna give us a heads up that there might possibly be a potential pretender that exists inside each one of us, an imposter of sorts, somebody who's posing or pretending. And I think all of us would recognize that there is the very real risk that there are people pretending to be something that they're not. Just, uh, we call that a fraud. Several years ago, I came across this, this story in the news about a 49 year old man from Brooklyn, New York named Thomas Prusik, who was arrested and convicted for impersonating his dead mother in order to collect $115,000 in social security checks. Now his mother, a lady by the name of Irene Prusik died in 2003 at the age of 73. His scam began almost immediately after that. He gave the funeral director a fake social security number and date of birth so that her death would not show up in government databases. And he began collecting $700 a month from her social security. And for six years, he deceived numerous government agencies by pretending to be his deceased mother. His charade included a wig, heavy makeup, oversized prescription sunglasses, a cane, a fake ID, and a friend who he recruited to play the role of the caring nephew who would drive him around town to run errands. So this is him pretending to be his mom. That's his friend pretending to be his nephew. Super creepy. All right. And when authorities began to suspect that something was up, a formal investigation was put into motion and Tomic... Thomas Prusik was eventually caught and arrested. He tried to explain away the deceptive scam this way. I held my mother when she was dying and breathed in her last breath. So I am my mother. Okay, Norman Bates. Okay, that's just, wow. Now you hear a story like that and you just kind of shake your head in disbelief thinking, how in the world could something like that happen? But it does. 
like all the time. Now, unfortunately, or unfortunately, not to that extent, but we all know that in the world in which we live, like pretenders are all around us. The risk of fraud, scams, and identity theft has only increased in recent years. All of us have probably had um, our credit card company contact us and say, hey, there was a charge. This doesn't look right. Yeah, my credit card's been compromised. Okay, we're going to send you another one in the mail. We've all probably had that uh, phone call from the fake IRS saying that we owe thousands in back taxes, but they can get it taken care of like right now if we just give them our social security number. Hopefully you've never done that. We have all um, received that email from that notorious Nigerian prince. All right? we've, all, we've all gotten that. And so as a result, we are all on high alert and we are somewhat afraid of being scammed. You know, it's kind of ironic that this would be the week where I'm putting this message together because just this past week, and this happens about half a dozen times a year, where I will receive a notification that somebody has used my name and a picture to create a false social media account asking people for money. And it happened again this past week. Maybe a number of you received one of these two messages from fake Aaron broke it because they spelled my name wrong. And it's like an invitation to my private fan chat and, you know, please give me your money. I just, I just want you to know, all right, that I will never, ever, ever send you a message like this. Okay, so just be smart. And uh, as unfortunately, we live in this world of just people who are faking it and pretending. And it's astounding how deceptive people can be. And so as Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, he turns his attention towards this deception. So what he's going to do is he's going to point out the deception that exists within the human heart. And he's going to say, here's how to detect it. And here's what to do about it. And this is where it comes from. And so look with me at verse 15 of chapter 7. He says, beware of, and this is the word that he uses, false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but really are vicious wolves. Now that statement is unsettling to say the least. He's saying that there is such a thing as people that disguise themselves as someone that they are not. They are posing, pretending, they're playing a role. Now, when I was in high school, I had a good friend of mine by the name of Scott. And Scott worked at the Sears Tire Shop. And he had about half a dozen of these light blue button-up shirts that said Sears Tire Shop. And then underneath it was the name Scott in cursive and a patch just underneath that. And so one Friday night, we didn't have a lot to do. Me and my, about six of my friends, we all took those shirts. We all put them on. And then we borrowed our dad's briefcases and we went to Taco Bell and pretended like we were having a conference meeting at the Taco Bell. And we all called each other Scott. All right, so this was Joplin, Missouri in the 1990s. There wasn't a lot to do. Because I think right after we went to Blockbuster and rented some movies, okay? That's just the time period in which we lived. Now, we were pretending. We, we were wearing a false name. We were acting like somebody that we weren't. And that was just in good fun. This isn't what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is warning us about something much deeper, much more sinister, and the word can be even used evil. This is somebody who appears to be a friend. Somebody who appears to be family. Somebody, the word that Jesus uses, harmless sheep. Harmless sheep ain't gonna hurt you. I, I could take a harmless sheep. But then he says, actually, their intent is more like a vicious wolf. 
they, they are not only speaking on behalf of God, claiming to have a spiritual authority that they do not, but actually twisting the very words of God, here's the key, in a concerted effort to lead people astray. So what comes to mind when we hear the word false prophet? Well, in my study this past week, I just made a list. And maybe you could add a few to these. This isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but I just wrote out, well, false prophets are uh, controlling cult leaders. Maybe think David Koresh, a glitzy TV evangelist, street corner screamers, doorbell warriors, somebody with an ulterior motive like power or money, somebody teaching something blatantly false. Now, false prophets, unfortunately, have always been a thing. And it originated with the original false prophet, Satan himself. So in order for us to really understand what's going on here, we need to understand the story of the world and the narrative of the Bible in the sense that God is a God who uses words. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. Uh, The Gospel of John introduces Jesus this way. In the beginning was the... Word And the word was with God and the word was God. God uses words. And so maybe you have heard that quote from St. Francis of Assisi. And I think it's a great quote to a certain extent, but I kind of have a little bit of an issue with it where he said, hey, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. Um, God used words and words are important. And Satan knows that. And so from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve We're in the garden. Satan's primary play was to get them to doubt God's word. And he did it with a leading question. He said, did God really say? And it is the same question that he uses to sow discord, division, confusion in all of our lives today. Did God really say? Like, can the Bible really be trusted? And there's a reason why he is the father of lies and he is the king of deception and counterfeit. And he's been doing it way longer than you've been alive. And so you and I are no match for it, which is why we need to be familiar enough with God's word that we can detect it when we hear it. So it says in the last days, and yes, by the way, people ask me this all the time. Are we in the last days? Yes, we have been since Jesus ascended into heaven. The prophet Isaiah in Romans 1 says, in the last days, they'll call evil good and good evil. Just look at any sort of media headline. That's happening all the time. It is Satan twisting and distorting the very words of God. It is false prophecy. So here's the definition of a false prophet you might write down. I'm going to give you two of them, but here's the first one. A false prophet teaches or affirms something false that leads people further away from God. Now, this is so important to understand that a false prophet is not somebody who just simply makes a mistake or gets a detail wrong in their teaching. Like we are all capable of doing that. No, a false prophet is somebody that is not um, open to admonishment. They're not open to feedback. A false prophet is somebody that is intentionally misleading. And there may be multiple voices communicating something false, but we need to understand primarily where it comes from. I want to show you just a passage out of 1 John chapter 2. It says this, Dear children, the last hour is here, meaning like final days, and you have heard that the capital A in the singular Antichrist is coming. And already many such lowercase a plural Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that the last hour has come. And so from this teaching, John seems to be indicating to us that yes, There is such a thing as an anti 
Christ that we need to be aware of, but he's also saying there are lots of anti-Christs. And that is anyone or anything that is actually opposing the very words of God. And we're like, what? Like, I thought that the Antichrist was one dude that we needed to watch out for. If you remember the 1990s and you were in church then, it was this guy right here, Nikolai Carpathia from the Left Behind series. And we're just like, I'm going to keep my eye out for, I do not trust that dude, right? That is the Antichrist. And John says, yes, but there are Antichrists. And that only makes sense because we have one Holy Spirit and there are multiple unholy spirits called demons. There is one Christ, Jesus himself, who is both fully God and fully man, who came to this world 2,000 years ago to live the perfect life that you and I could never live, to pay the price of the thing that we owed a debt to. And he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's justice. And he portrayed his grace and mercy onto you by taking your sins on a cross. And he nailed them there. And you might be like, why did the cross have to be so brutal and bloody and messy? Because your sin is... And that's what it does in our lives and in the world. But he went into a grave and he defeated death and he walked out of that grave so that one day you could too. And he ascended into heaven right now to mediate between you and God. And so here's what Satan will do. Here's the two plays he's been running from the beginning of time. He's not all that. Uh, uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of ingenuity, but the two plays he's been running for so long, he's really, really good at it. The first one is he just wants you to reject God. That's, if he could get you to reject God, that's what he wants. What does that look like? I don't believe in God. I don't think God's good. I don't think God cares. I don't think God's real. I prayed and God didn't answer my prayer, all of that stuff. I, I don't, I'm just going to reject God and reject his word. But if he can't get you to do that because you were made to be in relationship with God, whether you know it or not, that your heart is being pulled in the direction of your creator. You were made in his image, whether you acknowledge him or not. But if, he'll, if he can't get you to reject God, his second play is to just distort your view of God and his word. What does that look like? Well, I know the Bible says this, but it can't mean that today. The Bible has been reinterpreted by a whole bunch of people over the years. And so we can't really trust it today. I don't really know that God is good. I think that always eventually lead to God. You just need to be sincere in what you believe. It is all false prophecy. He just wants to get you to twist and distort God's word. Call evil good and good evil. And so I just created a checklist this last week of what false prophets do. They deny what the Bible affirms. They add to or take away from the gospel message. They reject the authority of God's word. They reject the deity of Christ. They diminish the reality and consequences of sin and they just downplay it. They stir up confusion and promote division. They use shame to reinforce power. They deconstruct, that's a hot word nowadays, without ever reconstructing anything. And Jesus tells us how to identify them starting in verse 16. You can identify them by, by their what? By the fruit. That is, by the way they act. Now, uh, in other words, a false prophet isn't so much like um, revealed by the inaccuracies of what they teach, but a false prophet is revealed by the way they live their lives. And the word that Jesus uses here is fruit. This could be referenced to fruits of the spirit. The whole list is given in Paul's letter to the Galatians. You're probably familiar with it. Love, joy, peace, 
Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the fruits that the Spirit yields in our lives. So let me give you the second definition of what a false prophet is. A false prophet is somebody who teaches or affirms quite possibly something that is true, but they fail to live it in their own lives, which then leads people further away from God. And I don't know about you, but that description right there is really sobering. All sorts of alarms go off in my head because once again, I don't know about you, but that could be me. All of us would have to admit that we have acted in very unchristlike ways after giving our lives to Christ. We would all have to admit that never do our beliefs 100% match up always to our words and behavior. Now, nobody is going to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit like all the time, like perfectly 100% of the time. But this is the question to say, um, is, is, are the fruits of the Spirit the norm in my life rather than the exception? And if it's the exception, then there's a problem. And this sort of like inconsistency or incongruency between what I say I believe and what I say and how I live, well, the word for that is hypocrisy. And it explains why it is so damaging. And actually Jesus would say like hypocrisy, that's a form of a a false prophecy in all of our lives. And then he expands upon it uh, from verses 16 through 20. He says, can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So Jesus is using a little common logic about trees and fruit. He says, if a tree is good, fruit's going to be good. Tree's bad, bad, fruit's going to be bad. That totally makes sense. And then he simply points out this truth that just sort of strikes like a dagger. He says the same thing is true when it comes to people. It doesn't really matter so much what you say if it's not in your heart. And eventually what's in your heart will work its way to the surface. So just a subtle observation here. Jesus doesn't say you will know them by their false doctrine. He says you will know them by the way that they act. Because eventually, given enough time, the mask will come off. Now, I'm not fully sure where he does it, but somewhere within these verses, did you pick up on the subtle shift in Jesus' teaching where he has just gone from warning us of an external threat to making us aware of an internal one? So he starts off the passage going, hey, watch out for false prophets. That's external. And then he says, hey, watch out for the false prophet that might exist within you. That's internal. And it's not that our actions will reflect the fruits of the Spirit perfectly all the time, but it is a sobering warning that if my actions are rarely producing fruit, what does that mean? Well, there's always conflict. There's always discord. There's always division and disruption in all of my relationships. Then I periodically need to take inventory of that. Especially if I say that I'm a Christian. And just as long as there is more growth that needs to happen, which by the way, that would be true for all of us, post giving your life to Jesus, there is always more growth that needs to happen. I don't care if you've been following Jesus for 20, 40 or 60 years, there's always more growth. None of us have arrived. Nobody has achieved perfection. We are making progress. The biblical word for that is sanctification. 
So just as long as there's room for growth, then there are cracks that that false prophet, that poser, that pretender or imposter, whatever you want to call him, can weasel in there in those cracks in our lives and wreak so much damage and does all the time. There's so much at stake. And so all of this sets up what I think are some of the most disturbing words that Jesus ever spoke. And it's found in verse 21. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. Now, the first question we have to ask is like, well, what is the will of the father? And I guess if we could maybe reduce it to um, in its simplest form, maybe two things, the great commission and the great commandment. So the great commission, Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's for every Christ follower. That doesn't mean you quit your job and go into full-time vocational ministry. That just means that you are about the great commission, no matter what you do for a living. And then the great commandment is you're going to love God and love people. And he says, I want you to do those things. Now it's not that by doing those things, it saves you. But in the words of Tim Keller, he goes, we are saved not because we do those things, but because we are saved, we want to do those things. That it's an ultimate like transformation of the heart. In other words, it's not just lip service. It's not like, well, I believe in God and that's enough. Or I go to church occasionally and that's enough. It's like, no, Jesus is like, show me by your actions. You're not justified by your actions, but your action shows me that you're justified. And then he says in verse 22, on judgment day, many, now circle that word many. He didn't say there's a few. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and we perform many miracles in your name. Now, I'm just kind of curious, any of those have all three under your belt? Like, I don't know that I got one of them. Like, you can maybe make the case that what I'm doing right now is prophesying in Jesus' name, but I've never cast out a demon, and I've never, maybe the closest I've ever gotten to performing a miracle is talking my wife into marrying me. That's maybe about the closest. I think that qualifies. But I don't know that I've done any, I certainly don't have all three of those. But these are people Jesus is saying on judgment, they've done all three. To me, that sounds like super Christians. But notice Jesus' response to them in verse 23. But I will reply, I never knew you. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, you, you weren't really saved. That's different. Jesus didn't say, hey, you thought you were saved, but you weren't, or you did it wrong. No, he says, I never knew you. Like that's, that's relationship talk and it's really sobering. And one of the things that we have to do whenever we hear Jesus teach something that is disorienting like that is one helpful method of like interpreting the Bible correctly is to say, okay, I don't really understand what Jesus is saying here. So let me try to eliminate what Jesus is not saying. So notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, you were never really saved in the first place. Like you, act, you missed a step. Like here was the recipe and you, you missed this. And so you went through your whole life thinking that you were saved, but you really weren't. And I think that's a fear that maybe many of us have had if we're being honest. We're like, how do I really know I'm saved? Like I gave my life to Christ. I don't know if I feel any different. Like I, I repented. I professed my belief. Check, check. I, I was baptized maybe even multiple times. I tried to be kind to everybody. I got in a group. I started serving and giving. I went on a mission trip. I attended church regularly. I even put a TP sticker on the back of my car. So that way Aaron would go TP and pray for me. All right. 
on judgment day, I'm going to make sure that I wear my Trader's Point t-shirt so that Jesus sees me at a distance and goes, oh, they're already in. That's what I'm going to do. And yet I'm going to stand up there and he's going to go, ah, you know, you missed an ingredient. Like your heart was in the right place, but you totally missed. And that's not what Jesus is saying. So I want you, I want to, settle your spirit right now. And at the same time, I want to push in and convict you. I want to do both those things at the same time, which is incredibly hard. So here, understand this. Remember your salvation. It is based on works, just not yours. It is based on the finished work of Jesus. He did it all. He did all the heavy lifting. He came to pay the price that we owed and he had the currency to pay it that we never would have. And so Jesus took your sin and he nailed it to a cross. And so that's, it's all this, you, even I noticed it in our song sets today. Did you notice like it was just all these songs centered around Jesus. That's intentional. We are here for him. He is our mediator, our connection to God. It's the best news you'll ever have is that Jesus says, just come to me as you are. The only requirement, be real. Lay down the mask, stop pretending, stop posing. Don't let that imposter rise up within you. Just be real in front of me. You could even say that the word real, the Bible word for that is repentance. That, that's what he wants. Your salvation is done. It's finished in Jesus Christ. And Jesus will never say like you left something out or you got this wrong or this little detail over here. In the passage in verse 23, Jesus says, I never knew you. And actually, while this is a little scary, it should be freeing. Jesus doesn't expect you to prophesy, perform miracles and cast out demons. Jesus isn't looking at all of your works and saying, you've got to be good enough to be saved. Jesus is saying, I just want you to be real and I want to be in relationship with you. And you can't be in a relationship if you aren't real. So this is not a religion. This is not a formula. This is not a performance. Jesus says, you were made to be in relationship with God. You were made, like I want to be known by you and I want to fully know you. So what are some footholds that we can give to that internal imposture in our lives? Well, let me just give you a few. You probably already know this. This is just a good reminder. Pride. Pride is one of those, th pride is not just looking down on everybody else. Pride is just thinking a little bit too much of yourself. Pride is having these internal arguments and you always win. Pride is never being able to receive constructive feedback or accountability from other people. Here's the other one, just never being real, not even with yourself. Always faking it, always pretending, always hiding, always stuffing, always numbing. Here's the other one, hypocrisy. There's just this inconsistency between what I say I believe and how I actually live, what I say I'm going to do and what I actually do. And this can be so damaging within the lives of Christians and within the church, but it exists everywhere. There's hypocrisy in the church to be sure. There's also hypocrisy outside the church. It's everywhere. And I think these three things can be summed up in this one word that I think Jesus is the hardest on more than anything else. And that is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And this is where those of us who are following after Jesus and we've been following after for him for any length of time at all. We have to be so careful of this one. And I can tell you that um, it's a difficult thing to teach and preach about self-righteousness because one of the primary symptoms of it is that you can see it in other people, but you can't really see it in yourself. It's just difficult to see. You think you're 
you think you're just actually being faithful and obedient to God. But the longer that you're in the church and the longer that you study scripture and try to apply it to your life, the more susceptible we can all be to this sin of self-righteousness, which is this false prophet rising up within and through our actions and behavior, even if it's unintentionally unintentional, we are actually leading people further away from God. Jesus speaks to this later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23, speaking of religious leaders, he's, he's saying, so practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example for they don't practice what they teach. Notice this in verse four, they crush people with what? Unbearable religious demands. And they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. And I never want that to be guilty of me. And unfortunately, we live in a time and a space where it can be so easy to slip into that space. And what you need to know about the church that you walked into is that we want to get as many people to Jesus as possible, primarily because he told us that's what the mission of the church should be. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. That is the mission statement of every Christ-centered Bible-teaching church. So if you move out of state, if you're trying to find a church in another state, look at the mission statement. If it doesn't sound anything like Matthew 28, run. Because that's what the mission of the church that Jesus gave us. Now, you can phrase it differently. And we've chosen to phrase it a little differently because of some other passages that had been formed our passion. So, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, we read about these four friends that get their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they hear he's in a house in a small town teaching. But by the time they get there, it's a packed house. They can't get their friend in. And like normal, rational human beings, you just wait outside until you could you know, walk by the receiving line. But they don't want to do that. They're so passionate that they tear a hole through the roof and they lower their friend to Jesus, interrupting Jesus' sermon. And Jesus loves it. And I love that passion. In a... Uh, when we hear about John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, and, and he was uh, prophesying that Jesus was coming, the, the Messiah. And a couple of people are like, well, maybe he's the Messiah. And so they asked him, they said, are you the one that we should be looking for? And he goes, oh, no, man. Like, I'm just here. I love this. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He goes, I'm just here to clear the way. I'm just clearing the way. Jesus is wooing people to him. Jesus is pursuing people. So he says that our job is to remove anything that's in the path so that people can get to Jesus. So the way that we've chosen to phrase our mission statement is that we exist to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. Please don't understand that statement. That does not mean that we are lowering the bar or watering down the gospel. That means not, this is not easy believism. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We're getting our own self-righteousness out of the way and we're removing the unnecessary. Now, are there necessary barriers? Yeah, you bet. Like, like Jesus is the Christ. The Bible is God's word. Like we're, the Bible even says that this could, the very gospel message itself can, be a, can trip people up. We're not lowering the bar on any of that. We're removing the stuff that shouldn't be there. Namely, like our own self-righteousness. Na namely, like rules and regulations that actually block people from seeing the real Jesus. And we want to remove as many of those barriers as we possibly can. In other words, could I say it this way? We want to use what we're selling. We want to eat what we're pushing. We want to be consistent with what we say we believe and how we live. It's kind of like this. You ever been to a restaurant, brand new restaurant, never been to it before in your life? And so you ask the waiter or the waitress, hey, what do you recommend? And they're like, oh man, the pot roast. You gotta have the pot roast. It is amazing. Oh, well, is that what you would order? No, I've never had it. <laughs> you ever had that happen? You're like, but you were so convincing. Like in, well, because they were reading a line. 
Like, they, they, like their boss like said, hey, you need to put the, push the pot roast tonight. See, we, we simply put, we, we want to be consistent as Christ followers to say, yeah, man, I'm, I'm doing this too. And so we want to eliminate, ruthlessly eliminate the self-righteousness in our lives. See, for Jesus, it's not enough just to know the right things and say the right things. He wants possession of your heart. So he would one time summarize the intent of the Pharisees this way. He would say, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I just simply want you to lay that statement down over your own life and you ask it, only you can really answer it. Do my lips honor God, but is my heart far from him? And be honest. And maybe over the last couple of years, it's been subtle, but your heart is slowly and slowly drifted away from Jesus. You haven't gone anywhere. You're still here. You still say you believe. You're still going through the motions. But be honest, where's your heart right now? And Jesus would say, it's just a matter of time before your heart catches up to the rest of you. And so the word that he uses is W-O-E, woe. And it could be mean like, woe, slow up. He would say, woe to you. If you know all about me, but you don't really know me, like, like woe, woe to you if you're doing all these things that are good, but you're not doing them out of a genuine love for me. Woe to me if you give me your wallet, you give me your time and your talents, but you've never really given me your heart. Jesus will shine a spotlight on that pretender and he's doing it out of love for you. He said, I just simply want you to be real. I don't want the fake you. I want the real you. So let me just give you three very step, simple steps of application. They're simple, but they're not easy. Here's the first one. Sometime this week, just face your reality boldly. And what is your reality right now? And maybe your reality is that your heart has slowly begun to drift. Maybe there's some things within you. You've begun to pretend. You've begun to pose. What's your reality? Just face it and know that there isn't anything that you can do that'll make God love you more or anything you can do to make him love you, love you less. He, he just wants the real you. Here's the second step. Tell yourself the brutal truth. Now, I don't mean be brutal with yourself. I just mean tell yourself the brutal truth, even the parts that hurt. And then the third step is be broken before God and, and someone else. You know, James says, if you confess your sins before God and others, you'll be healed. And so you just be broken before God, be broken before other people. And God says that there's something that happens is that right in, that, in those moments, like what's on the inside begins to match up with what's on the outside. And that's when God can begin to do a healing work. This is all heart stuff. And our heart, it's like, it's easy to hide because we oftentimes don't see it. It's easy to get busy. It's easy to sweep stuff under the rug, but it'll eventually catch up. I don't know how many of you remember seeing this uh, commercial for a pharmaceutical company years ago, but they were selling this prescription drug for hepatitis C. And my understanding of hepatitis C is that you don't really see it on the outside, at least not for some time, but instead it's doing its work on your insides. And the commercial showed this picture of a face that was becoming more and more disfigured and marred. And then there was this tagline that said, if hepatitis C attacked your face instead of your liver, you'd do something about it right away. In other words, like if you could see what was going on on the inside, instead of just showing everybody that everything's okay on the outside, then you'd probably do something about it a lot sooner. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. 
He's just simply trying to get us to see what's going on on the inside. He is just lovingly encouraging us to step out from the shadows, to drop the mask, to be known by him. So maybe sometime this next week, maybe it's later today, maybe it's sometime during the week, would you just maybe find a few moments where you can maybe step into your bathroom, shut the door and just look in the mirror and just look deep into your own eyes and just simply ask God to reveal to you what's there. It's a scary prayer to pray. But just say, God, what, what, what do you see? And what is it in my heart that I need to surrender to you? Why do I get so angry all the time? Why do I have such these emotional outbursts? Why, don't, why am I so defensive? All that stuff is heart conditions. It's all coming out sideways. And God, I just simply wanna come clean before you. I just wanna be real before my heavenly father because that's the only place where real healing can, can fully begin. You know, I, I just wanna lead and be a part of a church where we can be real, knowing that we're gonna urge each other towards growth. We're gonna hold each other accountable. We're not just gonna be fine continuing in our sin, but we're also, this is also a safe enough place where we can lower the mask and know that we'll still be received even though we're struggling. And some of my, I think for me, if we get to this place as a church where everything just feels a little too glossy and nice and neat and everything's always okay, then we're not really being real. I also don't necessarily wanna just like have all of our stuff hanging out all the time and we judge each other and use it, weaponize it against each other. There's this space in between where grace and truth come together. It's a real beautiful thing where the transformation of God really happens. See, it's, it's, it's far better to be broken than it is to eventually break. And some of us are maybe on that path towards, towards breaking when Jesus just simply wants you to be broken. And one of my favorite conversations around here, it just never gets old. I love talking to people in the lobby or maybe I bump into somebody at the grocery store and they're relatively new to faith and they're so new that they don't know what they should not say to the pastor. I love that. Like they just walk up and they're like, hey, that was a one hell of a sermon last week, pastor. Like they don't even feel bad about it. I love it because they're not pretending and please don't tell them, right? Please don't tell them what they should say or shouldn't say. And I'm not saying they shouldn't grow, but I love the realness. And maybe we could learn a few lessons from that. Jesus says, would you just come? Would you just come to me as you are? So I'm gonna ask you to do two things today. The first thing is that we're gonna have people just on the sides of the room. They are there not to judge you, not to figure out your problems, but to simply be someone that you can confide in. Now, they don't need to know all the nitty gritty details of your life, but they're just there to receive. And, um, you know, maybe it's easier for you to talk to somebody you don't personally know than somebody that you do. That's what they're there for. And so you just walk up to them after and just, they just wanna pray with you and encourage you, help you with your next steps, let you know you're not alone. Second thing is worship night on Wednesday, the 7 p.m come ready to drop the masks and let's just cry out to God. God, this is the real us. This, we need you now more than ever and watch what God might do 
in our individual lives and in the life of our church, if we can just fill this place with a bunch of people who are ready to be real before God, because when that happens, a real God shows up in real relationship with real power and real grace and real change that the world so desperately needs. Lord God, we come to you right now and more than anything, we, we just simply declare, I wanna give voice to hopefully what everybody's feeling, that we want to know you and we wanna be known by you. And so give us the strength to face down this imposter, this poser, pretender, you call it a false prophet, that is within potentially each one of us. God, I pray that we would be bold enough to step into the truth, to step into the light, to know that you are our heavenly father who loves us no matter what. And we just simply wanna be real with you. God, our world is a broken mess right now and it's not gonna be changed by people who continue to pretend, but by people who are real, who've met a real God with real power. And so Father, just in these next few moments, we just wanna sit still before you. We ask that your spirit would be at work actively in this room. That our minds wouldn't jump ahead to lunch or to the activities of the day. That'll come in its time. We don't want to microwave the work of the spirit that he wants to do right here now. We just want to sit in this moment, even, even for just a minute or two, to allow you to do the work that only you can. Thank you for loving us as we are, but thank you for refusing us to leave us as we are because you want to bring about real transformation and change. And it begins when we get real. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.